Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Can He Do That?, a show where we take a look at the way Trump is changing the American presidency and we examine the powers and limitations of the executive branch. For Trump's third weekend as president, he decided to head south. President Trump left Washington, D.C. today. He's headed to Mar-a-Lago, his estate in Florida, heading away from the White House for the weekend where he's expected to hold meetings at his estate in Palm Beach. That's right, Trump spent this past weekend at Mar-a-Lago and he's likely to go back there this weekend. So it just makes you wonder, how much time does a president actually have to spend inside the White House? I'm your host, Allison Michaels, and this week I have Jenna Johnson here with me. Jenna is a reporter here at The Post who followed Donald Trump for the majority of his time on the campaign trail. She's heard hundreds of Donald Trump speeches, spoken to hundreds of Donald Trump supporters, so she can really speak to this. Jenna, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about the White House. There's no actual law that says that a president has to live in the White House. Is that right? Exactly. So then why does a president choose to live there? Because it's the White House. There are so many presidents who've lived there who didn't want to leave. You are surrounded by staff that waits on you hand and foot. You're sleeping in basically a museum. It's this amazing place, this iconic place where a lot of people aspire to live. Uh, There's a big iron fence that goes all the way around it. There are armed Secret Service agents. There are snipers on the rooftop. There are guard stations. There's bulletproof glass. (laughs) This is a place where the president can spend a lot of time and feel very safe. One thing is that it's certainly very high-tech now, but my favorite fun fact about the White House is that there wasn't even indoor plumbing until 1833 under Andrew Jackson, so it hasn't always been this amazing place to live. So a little bit more to that point, what is it like to live there? (laughs) I wish I knew. I have not lived there. But, you know, someone who has a little bit more insight than either of us is a journalist named Kate Anderson Brower. And she wrote this book called The Residence, Inside the Private World of the White House, and interviewed all all of these White House staffers who've worked with various presidents and their families. I think it's really hard for the president and the first lady to get used to it. I mean, when President Obama moved in there and he first saw the staff of about 100 people, staffers who were there told me that his eyes kind of bugged out. And he was like, oh, my gosh, he had no idea that there were butlers, maids. These are also groundskeepers, florists, painters, and they work in the basement, a lot of them. It's really kind of like our closest thing to Downton Abbey. There are two basement levels to the White House, and there are actually shops. You know, there's the flower shop, the paint shop. And that's where these people work. And they are completely committed to their jobs. And I don't think that many people even realize they exist. And that's kind of the point. And I guess for Donald Trump, it's a little bit of an easier transition because he has long had a big staff and lived in an apartment that kind of looks like Versailles, perhaps is even more elaborate than the White House in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to some former staffers who say this is the first president who would be downgrading. Usually it's this opulence of the residence, the second and third floor of the White House. It's incredible, you know. There are 132 rooms in the White House. You know, people always wonder if the Trumps can come in and, like, bling out the residence. And they can, to an extent, they can do bedrooms and sitting rooms upstairs, but they can't change the yellow oval room, the Lincoln bedroom, or the Queen's bedroom without getting permission from the White House curators. And these people are so dedicated. They're like art historians. They're not like like the resident staff. They're not partisan. And so they get really mad when 
the president and first lady move furniture. Like the Clintons late at night would have trouble going to sleep. And I and they told me, you know, they would go into a room and all the furniture would be different. They would be like moving furniture at two in the morning for fun. And this really upset the curators because every piece of furniture in the yellow oval room is supposed to be in a specific spot. But for Melania Trump... I think the decision to stay in New York is really interesting because she does have this incredible life in New York. And, you know, why would she necessarily want to leave it to live in this fishbowl? Is it unusual for the president's wife and family to not come with him right away to the White House? Have we seen this before? No. I mean, ever since the White House was built, Abigail Adams was the first first lady to live there. And every first lady who's been alive and well has lived in the White House. It's going to take the American people some getting used to to not have a first lady there because it really is a job where you have a tremendous ability to do a lot of good. And it's symbolically really important. We've kind of built up the first lady in this country into something that no other, you know, the prime minister's wife in the UK is nothing like this. You know, she can have a job and a life. But we want the first lady to to treat it like a job. And so if she doesn't want to do it in a weird way, it's kind of like, I don't think she would call herself a feminist, but if she's drawing a line in the sand and saying, I don't want to do this, then maybe we should respect that decision. Now, Donald Trump is a man who does not like much change. Trump Tower opened in the 1980s, and it looks like it is still stuck in the 1980s. This is a man who has not changed his personal office in decades. He likes having things look the same, stay the same, be the same. He's big on having his own turf. So how does he make the White House his turf? How does he make it feel like his home? In a way, he's better equipped to do this than any other president because he's used to living above the store, which is what he's going to be doing. Um, We know that he likes his burgers well done, and he likes Lay's potato chips, which he has a supply of in the kitchen on the second floor. And um, the staff really goes out of their way to cater to any president. You know, they make sure, for instance, that, you know, Hillary Clinton had all the shampoo that she, you know, the kind of shampoo she wanted. And there's a funny story where the head housekeeper bought 20 bottles of shampoo that she thought Hillary Clinton liked when she was first lady and Hillary was like who told you I like this stuff I don't like this because they have to rely on the friends and so they had freshly baked bagels the next day for the Clintons I don't know what Trump is eating other than the Lay's potato chips and some of the chefs get really annoyed at having to cater like for George W. Bush the chef was actually fired it was a chef who was hired by the Clintons because W. wanted you know Tex-Mex and like pretty simple food and sometimes that bothers the kitchen staff because these are world-class chefs and they want to like showcase their talent and they don't like the fact that the president is is sort of has simpler tastes like peanut butter and honey sandwiches were George W. Bush's favorite lunch and I can see Trump asking for similar things I don't know you know a less kind of refined palate than the Obamas who were experimenting with food yeah yeah it seems like President Trump likely will not be spending a lot of time at the White House I have to think that He'll be going home to New York here and there to to see his family there. Does a president have to live 100% of the time in the White House? What what do you think of kind of splitting time between the White House and, and other locations? I mean, I think he can do that. I, you know, we've had President Johnson would go to the Texas White House, Stonewall, Texas, his ranch down there. Um, Nixon went to La Casa Pacifica in San Clemente, a huge estate where he went ac- after he resigned to and lived there for years. But I think they, there is a healthy need to get out 
of D.C. And we see that with, you know, Jackie Kennedy left all the time to go horseback riding in Middleburg, Virginia. I think that even if Melania does move here, she'll probably leave a lot. I think that it's really a relief for them when they can spend time with their family and get out of the White House. And we have seen that with presidents before. But President Bush 41 and Barbara Bush and the Reagans, they're examples of people who loved being in the White House. So um, I think that with Trump, you know, because he's going to have protesters in Lafayette Square, he's going to be under fire. And we see that he, you know, you have to develop a really thick skin. And when I interviewed the Johnson's daughter, Lucy, um, Lucy Baines Johnson, she said, you know, during Vietnam, she could hear the protesters outside morning, noon, and night. And I think that we might see something like that with Trump. And what does that do to your psyche when you can never unplug and relax? So we might be seeing some motorcades going out to Ivanka's house, I bet. Okay, so you have followed Trump on the campaign trail. You've been to Mar-a-Lago. You've been to some of his other spaces, including his airplane. What's he like in his own spaces? He's most himself when he's on his own turf. On the campaign trail, the happiest I ever saw him and the most comfortable and laid back was when he was sitting in his own office at Trump Tower or when he was at one of his own rallies and all of his supporters were standing before him or if he was on his custom plane uh, entertaining reporters. He seemed most uncomfortable when he was on someone else's turf. So when he had to step onto a debate stage and follow the orders of moderators. Mm -hmm. On Inauguration Day, he seemed kind of uncomfortable as he was going through the rituals of the day. He often seemed like he didn't quite know where he was supposed to be standing or what he was supposed to be doing with his hands or, or things like that. So for him, being in a place that he feels like is his own seems to be really important for just who he is. See, I think typically what would make somebody feel at home might be the presence of their family around. And one thing that we've seen, interestingly, with Trump is that his son Barron and his wife Melania have chosen not to move into the White House immediately. They've said they'll do so this summer or they're likely to do so this summer. Is this unusual that he's, you know, essentially by himself in the White House? Yes and no. Donald Trump is a workaholic. And all of his life, he has really spent more time in the office than hanging out with his family. And keep in mind, for his wife and his young son, Barron, for the past year or two, he's been on the campaign trail nearly constantly. They have not seen much of him for quite a long time. So it's not that unusual that he once again is working a lot. But for his older children, they have really been a constant fixture in his life ever since they got old enough to work. He seems to really rely on them to help him make decisions and to back him up. His daughter Ivanka followed him down here to Washington, but his two oldest sons stayed in New York and are running the business and are actually not supposed to discuss that business with him. And so that's different. He has fewer members of his family constantly around him. So we saw Melania meet him down there this weekend. Is that any indication that he might treat Mar-a-Lago as as less of an office and as more of a vacation home? Well, on the campaign trail, he promised that he wouldn't take vacations. So I think in the White House, the thinking is that this is just a second office, another place where he does his work. And that's not unusual. There are actually a lot of presidents who have worked from more than just the White House. And here to tell us a little bit more about that is Bob Wools, the executive director of a place in Key West, Florida, known as the Little White House. Well, the Little White House 
was always federal property and that it was built for the Navy back in 1890 as officers' housing. At various times, we've had very famous people come and drop in. William Howard Taft arrived in 1912. He had his photo taken on the property and then sailed from Key West on to Panama to see the building of the canal before he left office. We had Franklin Roosevelt multiple times here. He came as Undersecretary of the Navy, and then he returns in 1939 as President. Then, of course, we had Harry Truman uses it for 175 days of his presidency, and it's actually the functioning White House of the United States under Harry Truman. Now, 175 days, that is so many days. Six months. <laughs> Six months out of almost eight years. That's that's pretty remarkable. Yes, Harry Truman made this the Winter White House, so he was the first one to realize where the president is, there the White House is. But just as today, everyone, especially the press and the, and the public, complained the president was not working at the White House. He needed to be back in Washington, nose to the grindstone. You know, he can't be on vacation. And Truman, on the other hand, felt he accomplished much more being in Key West because he wasn't interrupted with a constant stream of, you know, just inquiring, uh, you know, staffers and things. And so he, he felt he had got a lot more accomplished here than there. Later presidents, uh, certainly Lyndon Johnson had the Southern White House, you know, in Johnson City, Texas. And and George W. Bush had his own ranch, and, and Ronald Reagan had his own ranch that, that served as remote locations for the president. I, I would think since 9-11, our security levels have gotten, you know, multiplied multiple times, much, much diff more difficult now. But I would say it's probably much, much more difficult for the president to have a, a private estate. Mar-a-Lago may very well be able to pull it off. Uh, the, uh, the Hyannis Port compound of the Kennedys was able to pull it off, but uh, the Clintons also, when they were here, lamented that they had no private little White House that they could escape to, so more difficult challenge today. So since Trump became president, we've seen a lot of reports uh, detailing kind of how he lives at the White House, what time he wakes up, what time he goes to bed, how he watches TV, what he's wearing. We've seen all of these these reports. Is this different from his life before he was president? Not that different. He seems to pretty much have kept the same routine that he's had for decades. And that includes not sleeping very much. And when he's awake, he's watching a lot of cable television and he's responding to it very quickly with tweets. Uh, I actually get alerts whenever the president sends a tweet, and most mornings that alert comes before my alarm clock goes off. Same. My husband made me turn off the alert notification for <laughs> Donald Trump because he was waking us up every morning. Um, so that's interesting. So how how is the way Trump acts at Mar-a-Lago any different from the way he's been acting in the White House? Have we seen any differences there? Not really. But at the same time, we don't really know much about his time down there last weekend. We know that he did some golfing, but the White House won't tell us who he was golfing with. We know that he went to a Red Cross gala that was held at Mar-a-Lago and a Super Bowl party that was held at another one of his properties. We know that he made some calls to foreign leaders, but that's it. We didn't really get to see much of him behind the scenes. Was he relaxing? Uh, was he just scrolling through Twitter and, and watching TV? What, what exactly was he doing? And I think it's going to take a few more trips to really get a sense of how is he spending his time there. So one thing, Trump has actually said 
that he really respects and is in awe of some of the the presidential spaces. He's sort of like astounded by Air Force One when he got on there. And he's said many times that he really res- it really feels like just incredible to kind of be in the in the Oval Office and he respects that space. But one space that he's not using and has made clear he doesn't really have an interest in using is Camp David. So why not use Camp David? Why have presidents used it in the past? Why is that not a good place for Trump? Because whenever he has an opportunity to go to his own turf, he's going to do that. I honestly think even though he has praised Air Force One, I think he really thought his own plane was better than Air Force One. (laughs) And I think if he had the option, he might still be flying his personal plane. So the plane, he can't do that. But his weekend home, he can. So I think he's just opting for a place that he knows and loves where he's already comfortable. He doesn't have to get used to it. He can't make Camp David the glamping of the woods, you know, like just spice it up. If anyone could, Donald Trump (laughs) could. So if he's going to spend all of this time on his own turf, what does it look like to secure these spaces and how much does that cost? To figure that out, we decided to talk to the great Carol Lenig, the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter from The Washington Post, who's written extensively about the Secret Service. She knows how all of this works. It's almost impossible on a daily, weekly basis to say how much it costs to protect the president because it's a gargantuan sum, no matter who it is. You know, we wrote about President Obama's trip to Africa, and there were many people who gave us estimates that it was in the tens of millions of dollars, primarily because he was going to a third world country where everything that involved his security had to be imported. Everything had to be brought in. Bulletproof glass, magnetometers, extra, extra, extra agents and law law enforcement people that they would normally sort of borrow locally, you know, a a gunship on the coast to be his uh, primary care hospital if anything happened to him. So when you think about that kind of expense, you get a flavor of just how many, how much of an army travels with the president wherever he goes to make sure he's safe. Now, domestically, I, I have not seen a situation like this where a president has a series of very very nice properties that he's spending a lot of time in, separate and apart from the White House. The travel in New York, the the, the time in Trump Tower and Mar-a-Lago was pretty extensive, and we'll see what happens with Trump Tower. And any idea, I mean, he made this trip last weekend to Mar-a-Lago, this weekend he's going back for a second time. What exactly goes into a trip like that? Oh, I mean, there's... Uh, There are three working shifts drawn from 300 members of a detail. There are, at any given time, 100 people assigned to him physically and to the perimeter and to planning his trip. There will be, as well, a fairly significant military presence, both for secure communications, for force protection around him to augment whatever visit he's making. Then you talk about like the actual equipment. We've all seen, a, many people in Washington at least have seen a presidential motorcade, but they probably aren't thinking about what all those vehicles are. Some of them um, are containing a counter-assault team that's supposed to gun down anybody who's a threat to the president or, or re- uh, literally makes a threatening attack on the president. That has never happened yet, but we have a team to protect him from that. There's a special vehicle that jams communications so that his 
internet and telephone and other conversations are secure and private. There are a series of vehicles that carry um, special protective materials in case he is poisoned. (laughs) There is, uh, you know, it's just a a lot of almost, as I said, like a, a small army going with him wherever he goes. Going back to Trump Tower, Trump Tower is such an unusual setup because unlike a ranch in the middle of Texas or a cabin out in the woods, I mean, this is a big tower in the heart of Manhattan. And there's this new setup that uh, has been in the news this week. The Department of Defense has been looking into leasing space inside Trump Tower because they're there, they're doing this work, uh, and they need some room to set up. So if they do this, that would mean the government would be paying money to the Trump Organization, which owns Trump Tower. Is this an unusual setup? I mean, has there any ever been anything like this? It's all a question of degree. You know, the, the Secret Service paid Joe Biden um, a monthly rental fee for a small kind of in-law house, almost like a cottage, on his property in, in Delaware because it had to be a command post for the service. So they paid him, you know, a a fee for the use of this piece of property he could have used another way. I I don't think anybody would quibble with that. I think what's different here is you have an enormous tower in the biggest city in America, very busy, and it's on Fifth Avenue. The property is worth a lot. The uh, rent is really high. It's not a cottage in Delaware. And so there's that. So it's going to be more expensive. And then the other part of it is that the president and the first lady, at least, and the first and and the their son, are going to be there a lot. And we'll see how much the president is there, but we know the first family is going to be there a lot. That ratchets up the need for having the military and the secret service have space there to again do all the things that they do to shield him from risk, to make his communication secure. I think it's reasonable that you're going to have to pay for it. What makes this different is that it's going to be much more expensive. So Carol spoke a little bit about the cost there. And one number that I wanted to bring up is a number that Judicial Watch, which is a watchdog group, has provided in the past. They've said that in total, Obama's vacations and trips cost the taxpayer $96 million. And this was a number that Republicans really took issue with. They used it as a talking point. What are some of the politics of this? Yeah, every time President Obama went on vacation, especially when he went to Hawaii over the holidays, Republicans would go after him for this. Donald Trump actually brought this up on the campaign trail and criticized Obama for it and said that he himself wouldn't take vacations when he was president, that he would just work for them. But now he's president and Democrats kind of have a script that they can follow. They can look at what Republicans said about President Obama when he was in office. And one comparison that's already been made was a trip that President Obama made in 2013 that's very similar to the trip that President Trump made last weekend, and that trip cost about $3 million. So already, $3 million has been written down on the ledger, and you have to think Democrats are going to be adding these up as they go. Have we heard anything of that from the the Democrats? Well, not specifically about the costs of these Mar-a-Lago trips, but there have been a lot of questions raised about 
Trump's properties and money that the Trump organization might be making off of his presidency, and also just the sheer cost of protecting him. Back when he was living in Trump Tower before inauguration, it cost tens of millions of dollars to protect Trump Tower. And that caused a lot of controversy. Yeah, we should just note here that we've been getting a lot of listener questions about conflicts of interest. We will be covering those in an episode with David Farenthold coming up soon, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, I'm going to ask Jenna about what she knows best, which is Trump supporters. And what do you think about the way that Trump supporters view Donald Trump as a billionaire who has properties around the world? Does it matter to them? For some voters, it matters a lot. But chances are those aren't the voters who voted for Donald Trump. When it comes to his supporters... They don't seem to care. And it's actually surprising that they were so attracted to him in the first place because so many wealthy people have had problems running for president because by being wealthy, they seemed so out of touch with average people. Yeah, Mitt Romney really comes to mind there. Exactly. And so you have Donald Trump. I saw this man wear white shoes to the Iowa State Fair. He's a germaphobe. He has had three wives. He lives in an apartment that looks like Versailles. I mean, how out of touch with the normal people could you be? But yet people love this about Trump because he didn't try to hide it. He said, I made all this money. And by being this successful, I'm going to bring the same mentality to the White House, and I'm going to make money for you. And there was this one time I was in this airplane hangar in Arkansas as his private jet pulled up. And now that's an image that could sink a lot of presidential campaigns. But for everyone around me, there was one woman crying. There were people taking pictures. There were people putting their kids up on their shoulders. Trump's wealth is something that has really worked for him up to this point. So we've now looked at historical precedent. We've looked at costs to the taxpayer. And we've looked at how time away from the White House might affect mentality or, or leadership. So I present this final question to you, which is, can he spend this much time outside the White House? Can he do this? Legally? Yes, he can totally do this. He can live wherever he wants. Uh, should he do this? That's the question that remains to be answered. He needs to keep in mind that one of his big weaknesses coming into office is that there are a lot of people who don't think that he looks and acts like a president. His favorability is very low right now, historically low. And something that can help his image as being the leader of the free world is spending more time in the White House. He also needs to keep an eye on the cost of this. He has said that he's going to cut costs, um, not take a salary, not cost the taxpayers anything. But yet these bills are starting to pile up. And at what point do they become a liability? Interesting. Jenna, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. If you guys want to follow Jenna, which you totally should, she's a great follow on Twitter, you can follow her at WPJenna, or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. Did you like this episode? I think you liked it. Review it on iTunes. Tell us that you loved it. We're here to make more episodes for you, so send us your story ideas, send us your tips. Thank you so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the exceptional Carol Alderman with additional reporting from Tanya Sachinsky. Rachel Orr is our killer design director, and our logo art is the work of Loren Boglio.